would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 today. As we take a break from our study of 1 John for the season of Advent, we're going to be looking at various psalms that teach us about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as they point us to King Jesus. Today, perhaps one of the easiest passages we'll be looking at as it's very explicit and we even have an inspired interpretation of the fact that this psalm is about Jesus Christ. So if you would follow along, let me read to you from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice With trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for every portion of your word. And today we thank you especially for this passage in Psalm 2. We would pray for the same Holy Spirit that caused the author of this psalm to write these words down, to be present in our midst here right now, wherever we might be, and that your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts that we might receive your word as you intend it to be received. Help us to see King Jesus today. And Father, as we do see King Jesus, fill us with hope and fill us with a renewed commitment and desire to submit ourselves to his sovereign authority. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we've talked about this before, but I I think it's so interesting about how so many of our much-beloved fictional stories are about kings or kingly figures. And think about the King Arthur legends, the once and future king, as he's referred to. Or think of the Lord of the Rings and Aragorn, the king of men, whose identity was hidden and then at the end is returned to power. Or think of the Lion King, uh, Mufasa, the king of the jungle who is killed in a coup by his brother Scar and whose son Simba is spared but has to go into exile until he can return to become the king once again. Think of the Chronicles of Narnia. King Aslan, who is uh, at one point thought to have been killed, and yet he will return with power. All these stories that we have 
of kings, kings who either have fallen into exile or who are in hiding for a time, and all the promises and prophecies about the return of the king. And when the king returns, the promise that he will usher in a new time, a new season of peace and righteousness and hope and joy. Why have so many well-known authors written stories with this common plot line about kings and kingly figures? It's been suggested, and I would agree, that one of the reasons why these stories grab our attention and grab our imaginations is because we have been created with the need for a king. We've been wired with a deep need to believe in and to serve and to give allegiance to the king. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created to be in a relationship with the true and the ultimate king, the Lord God Almighty. That relationship was broken by their sin. But the need and the desire for a king didn't go away. And to this very day, everyone is looking for a king to love and to serve. We've been created with that need. The problem is, so many people try to make things and people, other than the true king, their king. And even more than that, the scriptures tell us that people hate the true and greatest king, the Lord God Almighty. In many ways, Scripture is the story of the true and the greater king pursuing his people, redeeming them from their sin and making all things right. And as we come to Psalm 2, we get the picture of that story. The true king, established by God himself, is hated by the world. But he is the sovereign king nonetheless, and he is and always will be victorious. And he gives grace and blessing to those that would find refuge in him. That when his people submit to him and are in, in relationship with him as their true king, they get grace, they get blessing, and they are filled with hope. Hope for now and hope for the future. As we come into this season of Advent, God's people take some time to pause and to remember the first coming of the king. His first advent, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But this season is also for the purpose of looking forward with hope to the second advent, the return of our king. It's a season of expectation and hope as we wait. And that hope that comes from God, that is anchored in the king, King Jesus, is meant to drive us to a faithful, loving obedience to our King as we wait for His return. What I want us to do today as we look at these 12 verses of Psalm 2 is to see what it tells us about the reality of a King. There is a King. And it tells us not only that there is a King, but that the King is hated. And it also tells us that the King that is hated by the world is... And always will be victorious. Let's look at those three things and then let's consider and reflect on what difference that makes for us today. So first of all, there is a king. That's what the psalmist is describing for us in verses 4 through 9. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall, da- you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Who is this king that is being described in these verses? If you remember from my note to you on Friday, I mentioned that Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. Depending on whether you count quotes or citations or allusions, there's as many as 15 or even maybe a few more citations and quotes of Psalm 2 in the New Testament. It shows up in the Gospels. It shows up in the book of Acts. It shows up multiple times in the book of Hebrews and multiple times as well in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And each place that Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament, it is applied to Jesus. So we don't have to wonder who the king is that's being referred to here in Psalm 2. We have the inspired interpretation of Scripture itself telling us it is about King Jesus. As with so many other passages in the Old Testament, uh, we are supposed to read Psalm 2 and understand it on two different levels. There was an original context into which it was written. We're not given the specifics. It was some sort of coronation of a king. Could have possibly have been David, maybe his son Solomon, or one of David's descendants. But what we read is that at the coronation of this king of Israel, the nations and the people around don't like it one bit. They plot, they conspire to rebel against the king and to bring him down. That's the original context in which it was written, and we must think of that as we read Psalm 2. But as one commentator has said, the language of this psalm overflows its banks. In other words, the language that we have in Psalm 2 can't just be about an earthly king in or around 1000 B.C. The language here in the description of this king points to the greater and the better king that is behind the earthly king. It points us ultimately to God's anointed one. In Hebrew, that's the word Mashiach, where we get our word Messiah from. And the New Testament tells us clearly that this is ultimately about the promised Messiah, King Jesus. And as we come to Psalm 2, and as we see these verses, verses 4 and following, we get this very specific scene that is being set for us. The Lord God Almighty is in heaven, and He is unaffected by the hatred of the kings and the rulers and the peoples of this world. He says in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And as we go from verse 6 to verse 7... We have a change in speakers. It is the Lord God Almighty. It is the Father in heaven speaking in in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. But as we come to verse 7, we now see the king beginning to speak. I will tell of the decree, the king says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
That verse, verse 7, is the most quoted verse from the Psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted a number of times. Let me read to you just two places in Hebrews that that verse is quoted and referred to. The first is in Hebrews 1, the first five verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today? I have begotten you. The second passage is in Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The author to the Hebrews is crystal clear. When we read in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, it is King Jesus. He is the long promised Messiah, Messiah. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the psalmist not only tells us who it is, but also gives us a sense of where this king reigns. It's in verse 8. King Jesus speaks and says, ask of me, or he's quoting the father, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations are the heritage of King Jesus. The ends of the earth are his possession. In other words, King Jesus reigns everywhere over all things and all people. It reminds us of what theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Regardless of whether it acknowledges Jesus' reign or not, all of the universe and everything in it belongs to Him. Whether you are a Christian here this morning or not, Every sphere and every aspect of your life belongs to Him. Do you acknowledge that truth? Every sphere, every aspect of your life belongs to King Jesus. And if you do confess that truth, what difference does it make in your life? psalmist not only tells us who this King Jesus is or who this King is, that it's King Jesus and that his reign is over all things and all people. But notice he also gives us a picture of how he reigns in verse nine. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse nine is a picture of the sovereign power and the authority of King Jesus We'll see more about this in just a minute, but already here in verse 9, we can see that King Jesus rules his kingdom with absolute sovereignty and authority. 
He is not surprised by any event or any action in this world, and he is not deterred or stopped in accomplishing his purposes and his will. There is a king. It is King Jesus. He has been established in his throne by his Father in heaven, and he rules over all things with absolute sovereign authority. But the psalmist reminds us that just because the king is sovereign in power and authority doesn't mean that he isn't hated. We get that in verses 1 through 3 as the psalmist begins the psalm almost with an incredulous mindset. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who is it that hates the king? Verse 3 says, it's the kings and the rulers and the nations that speak against the king. Picture giving us this picture of the nations that rage against King Jesus, of the peoples of the world that would plot against him to have his downfall. And notice, we're, we're told that the kings and the rulers of the world set themselves. It's, it sounds a little odd to our ears. It doesn't sound like a, uh, like a full sentence that, that the, the kings and the rulers of the world set themselves. In Hebrew, the word there means that they position themselves to stand for a fight. They counsel together to plot against the Father and against His anointed, against His Messiah. That's been the case since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Nations and peoples of the world, kings and rulers, have hated King Jesus and sought to bring Him down. And notice the psalmist even tells us why they are that way. We see that in verse 3. It may be a little bit hard for us to see it in particular, they say, the, the kings and the rulers of the world who hate King Jesus, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Speaking about the Lord God Almighty. At first look, it sounds like what they're saying is that the king has them bound up in bonds and cords in some kind of imprisonment. But the Hebrew words here for bonds and cords mean something a little bit different. Bonds and cords in that culture were a way that a yoke was fixed to an oxen or to a horse. And one of the purposes of a yoke on an oxen or a horse was to show ownership. That this horse, this oxen, belonged to somebody. It was owned by somebody. It is cared for by somebody. So what the kings and the rulers and the nations are saying here in verse 3, let us burst the bonds apart. Let us cast the cords from us. They hate the king because they don't want to be owned by anybody. Because they don't want to be owned by the king. That's the default of the human heart since the fall. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anybody asserting authority over us. And my goodness, haven't we felt that over the past 18 months? Good people can debate the merits and the legitimacy of governing authorities or medical professionals telling us what to do. 
But there is no debate about the rightful and sovereign authority of King Jesus over all people and all of creation. And people hate him for it. In fact, we have a passage in Acts chapter 4 where Jesus' disciples actually take Psalm 2 and they apply it directly to Herod and to Pilate and to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel who cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They didn't cry out and demand that Jesus be crucified because he was a nice guy or because he was a good teacher or a moral example. They cried out for the crucifixion of King Jesus because he claimed to be God, he claimed to be the Messiah, and he called for absolute devotion to him alone. And they hated him for it, and they killed him. Now, that, I realize that might sound offensive to say that people hate Jesus, even that his own people hate, hate him sometimes. After all, even today, yeah, even here in the United States, there are probably very few people that if we were to ask them, they would say that they literally hate Jesus. They might say he was a helpful teacher. They might say he was a good role model. They might even say he, that he was mistaken about who he was, who he said that he was. But the Bible doesn't say that people hate the idea of Jesus. The Bible doesn't say people hate the Jesus that are, is created in their mind. The, the Bible says that people hate the biblical Jesus. The Jesus that demands our absolute submission to him. The Jesus that says that he is the rightful and sovereign owner of us. The Jesus that is described to us in verse 8. And when people rebel against the biblical Jesus... They're showing their hatred for him. Now, Jesus said that himself. John chapter 15, Jesus preparing his disciples for what it was going to be like when he left. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So here's the problem. On the one hand, the default of the human heart after the fall is to hate the true and ultimate King Jesus. To not want Jesus to be the owner of us. To not be an authority over us. And on the other hand, all people created and wired with the desire and need for a king. And as a result, people are constantly looking for a king to serve. We can't help it. We're wired to do so. But when we give our allegiance and our love to the wrong kings, we will never be satisfied. We will always be let down. Anything other than Jesus that we try to make king over us or that we would serve as our king will result in our destruction, not in our flourishing. It could be our career. It could be our children. It could be our spouse. It could be our health. It could be substances that we abuse. It could be our politics. 
Anything, even good things that we try to put in the place of the true king will fail us miserably and lead us into rebellion. What are those things for you? The season of Advent is a good season for God's people to take a step back and to wrestle and to discern. What are the things that I have that I've put in the place of King Jesus? What are the things that I'm giving my devotion to and my love to and my service to more than King Jesus? Even if they're good things, even if they're things that he has created and given to us. Those things would lead us into rebellion against the true king. The psalmist tells us that there is a king and that the king is hated. But he also gives us the good news that this king is and always will be victorious. That's how the psalm ends in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is the language of absolute allegiance to King Jesus or else. Absolute allegiance. The psalmist says that we are to serve the Lord, that we are to rejoice with trembling, and that we are to kiss the Son. Those are three commands, three imperatives. There is no in-between. There is no halfway. Kiss the Son, he says. It's a picture of being in submission to the Son King. Being in submission in obedience and love and service. We either bow in submission to King Jesus, kissing Him, or else. The language here in verses 4 and 5 and verse 9 and the beginning of verse 12, that language is meant to startle us. It is meant to get our attention. It is meant to wake us up. In verse 4 and 5, we see this picture of God in heaven who is unaffected by the rebellion of the world. And in fact, he laughs and he scoffs at it and he mocks it. Verse 9, we see a picture of those who hate King Jesus being defeated, being shattered like pieces of pottery smashed to the floor. That passage is particularly quoted at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19. As John gets this picture of the end of time and what will come as Jesus returns for his second advent, listen to what he says. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called as the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The beginning of verse 12 says that those who oppose King Jesus will perish in their ways. They cannot abide in hatred for Jesus forever. They will come to an end. 
King Jesus is and always will be victorious. We have to pause and feel the sober warning that is here. For any who are not in a relationship with King Jesus, the words of the psalmist are a sober warning. And if that's you today, hear that warning. Put your faith in King Jesus. Trust in Him. Take refuge in Him. And find His grace and blessing to you. But Psalm 2 is not only giving us a sober warning, it's also giving us this picture that Jesus is also a king of abundant grace and blessing. You see that at the very end of the psalm, as the psalmist reminds us, blessed are all who take refuge in King Jesus. For those who would try to throw off the yoke of Jesus, they will be destroyed and they will perish. But for those who embrace the yoke of Jesus, it ends up not being a burden to them, but refuge and blessing. Blessed are those who take refuge in King Jesus, who gladly take on his yoke. And I want you to notice that the psalmist tells us at least part of what that refuge and blessing will be. After all, this is not just the Son of God. This is not only the King. But what, is we, what else are we told about Him in verse 2? He is the Father's anointed. He is the Messiah. In Greek, He is the Christos. He is the Christ. Jesus the King is also the Messiah. The one who was promised all the way from Genesis 3, who would come to redeem his people from their sin. The Jesus that commands our absolute allegiance and love is the Jesus who goes to the cross to pay for our sin. The Jesus that commands ownership over us is the Jesus who shows us his abundant grace and mercy. He is the one who pays for our sins through his first advent, through his death on the cross. He credits me with his righteousness. He is the one who promises that he is coming back. Our king will return a second advent. And when he does, he will bring with him our eternal eternal inheritance. And as we meditate on this wonderful King Jesus, King of abundant grace and blessing, it begins, us, begins to help us to see some applications for us today. To answer the question, so what difference does this make? The first thing that it means is that we right now as God's people are to be full of hope. In the present, today, As we remember King Jesus' first advent and as we wait for his second advent, we are to do so as people of hope. Kings, rulers, leaders, peoples of the world may rebel against and hate King Jesus. The life of a Christian in this world may be hard and full of trials and persecution. But Jesus says, take heart, be full of hope because I have overcome the world. No matter how bad things get in this life, Scripture is clear. Those things are light and momentary afflictions. And even God uses them for our good and benefit to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory. Be 
Be clear, Christians should stand up for what is right, and they should stand firm on the principles that they believe are biblical and right and true. But when things do not go according to how we want or how we believe that they should, we are not to lose hope. Our hope is not grounded in how things go in this life. And that leads us to realize not only are we to have hope for now, we are also to have hope for the future. Jesus' first advent was successful. He accomplished His purpose. His work was finished and completed. And that means that we have an infallible hope for the future. Nothing can take away what is coming for the people of God. That's what Peter said. We are born again to a living hope, he said. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you are in Christ, nothing can take that away from you. It is already yours and it is being kept for you in heaven. And so if this time of the year, if this season is a season that you enjoy. It's a season that brings you joy. It's a season of happiness for you. Then never forget it's only a foretaste of what's coming. And if this season is not necessarily a season of joy, and if it's a season more of discouragement for you, then take heart because something so much better is coming. We are to have hope now and we are to have hope for the future. And that hope must move us to a faithful, loving obedience while we wait for our king to come back. And that's the final application. All people are called to submit to King Jesus. Psalm 2 is crystal clear. Rebellion against and hatred for God's king cannot And will not abide forever. It will not last. It will come to an end. It will be put down. And if you have not put your hope and your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ as your ultimate king. It is not too late. But one day it will be. Hear the call of King Jesus. Put off your hatred. And put on the yoke of Jesus because it is easy and light. There is no refuge for anyone outside of King Jesus. But by taking refuge in Jesus, we get his grace and we get his blessing. And lastly, I want you to know that if you are a Christian, you are one of God's people, that we too need to hear And read Psalm 2 and hear the call to submit to King Jesus as well. Yes, we are already submitting to King Jesus by putting our faith and our hope in Him. But as one of God's people, we too are called to continually submit every area of our lives to Him. That means that we are called to fight and to lean against our sin. To lean against even those sins that we can't see how we're going to get rid of them. To shake off our apathy toward our sin and to love Jesus more than we love our sin. That we would dedicate our lives to growing more and more like Him in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions.
And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, use the season of Advent to recommit yourself every day to Jesus' call to submit to His absolute and sovereign authority over us. For He is our King, but He is also our refuge. Let's pray together. Father, these are hard words, perhaps, for us as we come to this portion of your word. And for those who are part of your people, we confess that we believe in King Jesus. Help our unbelief. And we confess that it's so easy for us to give in to our doubts and to give in to the temptation And to not let the hope that is ours in Christ, the refuge that we have in Christ, to not let it move us to faithful and loving obedience like it should. Help us, we pray. Help us even this week. Help us to believe in King Jesus and to hear his call that we truly would submit to him. And Father, as we do that, would you remind us of the blessing that comes as a result of taking refuge in our King and fill us with a hope that this world cannot understand or explain, a hope that enables us to be faithful to you, faithful in our thoughts and our words and our actions, faithful in our love. We ask all this in his name. Amen.